Some of the most challenging relationships we have to learn to manage in this life are the ones we have with our coworkers, because we spend a lot of time with them, probably even more time than our friends, and we don't always get to choose who we work with. Amy Gallo is a workplace expert, best-selling author, contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, and host of the Women at Work podcast by HBR, which I highly recommend. We have been lucky enough to work with her in her role at HBR over the past few years. She has researched and written a lot about resolving conflict and building relationships at work. And she found that while people agreed with what she discovered about getting along, they often followed up with... Yes, but there is this one coworker. So, her newest book, Getting Along, is about dealing with those people and maybe discovering if you might be one of them. In this podcast, she discusses with us why work relationships really matter, as well as the compassion, encouragement, and tools you need to prevail on your terms. Amy, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that we were able to finally get you on the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Now, when I first heard about the book you were writing, I was very excited about the topic because I've read some of your different articles you've written for HBR about getting along. You seem to be really interested in this topic. But this book felt like a deeper dive because you were kind of really getting into details about getting along with even the most difficult people to get along with. And so many people, when they go to work, they say to themselves, you know, it's just work. I'm not here to make friends. I don't need to make friends. I'll go home and I have my friends. But you argue that these work relationships loom large in our lives. So can you lay out the case for us of why is it worth the trouble to have friends at work? Sure. So, and actually I was one of those people early in my career who just thought, "What? why would I have friends at work? This is work, right? This is not, I have my college friends. I have my roommates. Why would I put time and effort into these relationships? And to be honest, it's been a learning, personal learning for me of, of whether I intend to or not, I have relationships with the people I work with. Mm-hmm. And also just a deep dive into the decades of research that show the more that we uh, feel close to our colleagues, and that doesn't necessarily mean you go out for dinner on the weekends or you Mm -hmm. get your kids together for a play date. More, it's that you're invested in one another's success. You care about each other as people. You consider you know, you have friendly interactions. The more that's the case, the more we are engaged, the more resilient we are, the better we perform, happier we are at work. There's just so, there's just mountains of evidence that the more positive our relationships are with our coworkers, the much better we are at work. The opposite is also true, which is that the more challenging the relationships are, the more we experience incivility or discord with our colleagues, we have all of these negative consequences, right? We It impairs our cognitive functioning. It hurts our performance. It hurts our resilience, right? It hurts our creativity. So, you know, my argument is not that you're going to turn that pessimistic colleague or that tormentor or that political operator into your BFF. That's not really the goal. But the more Mm -hmm. you can neutralize those negative relationships and their effect on you, 
and simultaneously invest in the positive relationships you do have, the much better off you are going to be. And the better off your team will be, your organization will be. It, it just has an impact, not just on you as a human, but also on all of the places in which you operate as, as a professional. That's absolutely true. And what I found really valuable in the book was this deep dive into these different archetypes of people. Um, I love that you kind of gave them a name instead of like, oh, difficult people, this blanket statement. No, it's like, okay, let's dig into who are these ones that we, we encounter a lot. And they were the insecure boss, the pessimist, the victim, the passive aggressive peer, the know-it-all the tormentor, the biased coworker, and the political operator. Now, a lot of our listeners are in the training and development industry. So today on the podcast, I was wondering if you could talk us through one of these archetypes, um, the insecure boss, if you could define who it is and what these signals are and what kind of questions should you be asking yourself when you're dealing with this person and the toxic, tactics you can try with working with them? The archetypes really are meant to help people get the specific advice they need. And I'm glad you 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 pointed this out as a differentiator for the book, because I think a lot of times we think about difficult people as this lump of jerks or mm -hmm. challenging personalities, the sort of impetus to develop these archetypes to help people find what tactics are effective? What can I do with someone who's exhibiting these specific types of behaviors? Let's go through Insecure Boss. I love that idea. It's one of my favorites, if, if you can call them favorites. <laughs> um, it's certainly one I hear a lot about. The insecure boss is someone who is overly concerned with what others think of them. They might suffer from a chronic inability to make a decision or frequently shift the direction of a project or a meeting. Um, they will often take opportunities to highlight their own expertise or credentials. Mm. They also tend to be sort of classic micromanagers, right? They try to control everything about a team oh. or a project. Yeah, that's a fun one, right? Um, and and to be fair, and, and I try to do this with each of the archetypes, but to be fair, in being insecure and certainly being insecure boss is not unusual, right? It's not pathological. In fact, all of us feel some insecurity. And there's some research that shows the higher up you get in the organization, the more insecure you feel because now mm -hmm. the expectations for you are so great and you might feel like you wouldn't be able to meet those. So the questions I encourage people to ask themselves when they're dealing with someone who they could, you know, think might be an insecure manager is to really ask, like, one, is the insecurity causing a problem? Again, mm. we all feel insecure at times, but how is it actually having a negative impact? And can you hone in on the specific behaviors that are problematic? I And I just listed a few of them. There might be some others, but having a clear sense of the problem will then help you decide how to act. The other question really, I think is important is, are you somehow feeding the insecurity. And, and what I mean by that is that if your boss doubts themselves and then you react, you know, sort of with disdain or frustration, they might tend to feel more insecure. And so you really have to watch out for that. 
And then, of course, consider, I think, anytime you're dealing with a boss, like, what is it they want? What is their goal? And it's easy to tell yourself things like, you know, my boss wants to destroy my career. But what is it they're actually trying to do? Is it that they're trying to feel better about themselves? Is it that they're trying to look good to the higher ups? And even if you don't agree with what their motivation is, at least giving some credence to it, understanding it a little bit better can help a lot. And then, of course, the question is, what do you do, <laughs> right? And all of that yeah. will inform, you know, what tactics you try. And I really encourage people to, to experiment with different types of tactics to see what works because every situation is unique. It will depend on the culture of your organization, your relationship with your boss, what you feel comfortable with, what your identity is in terms of what you're allowed to try out in the workplace. But I think one of the key things with an insecure boss is to really hone in on those goals. You know, what is it they're trying to achieve and can you help them achieve that? That doesn't mean you have to like help your boss look good to their boss all the time. But if you can align yourself with them as opposed to putting yourself at odds, chances mm. are that insecurity will be soothed a little bit. So that's one tactic. An another is to, and I, I actually don't love giving this advice, although there is research to, to show that it works, is actually a little bit of flattery, genuine flattery, can again help to soften that ego and to make them feel a little more secure. Now, if they're terrible at making decisions, don't mm -hmm. go in and say, I love how you make decisions. You're so decisive, <laughs> right? It does have to be genuine. Um and hopefully there's something you can find about how they work that you really appreciate. Again, that can lessen the ego, you know, sort of soothe or smooth out some of the insecurity and make you feel more like a, a trusted colleague than someone who they might actually see as a, as a threat. And I understand, I want to be clear, when an insecure manager sees someone on their team as a threat that's not your problem to solve, right? Like it, it's, mm -hmm. it, that's their own insecurity. But if you can take steps that don't cost you a lot or take a lot of time mm -hmm. to lessen that dynamic, it's going to benefit your boss, certainly, but it's also going to benefit you and your, your relationship with them. Yeah, thank you. I, I really thought the book was so helpful in just giving so much practical advice and ideas, like you said, about each one of these different things, because, yeah, we, we all have weaknesses, we have strengths, and we're all flawed. And the more we can be patient and kind and gracious with understanding each other's flaws and trying to help, it just makes such a difference in our relationships. Yeah. Let's say you've done all that you could with this insecure boss and mm -hmm. you've tried to salvage the relationship. In the book, um, one story that stood out to me that I loved was um, of Bill Sutton, who left his job at Stanford University to remove himself from these pretty unhealthy dynamics that he was experiencing. But after a year at his new job, he realized the grass was not greener and he <laughs> went back to Stanford. But when he went back, it was with a 30% pay cut. If you want to stay, what can you do? When should you escalate something to someone who has maybe power to do something? 
or should you consider quitting? There are great costs sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Bob who says he's, you know, part of the grass is browner club, right? <laughs> which, which I love because, it, it, you know, it, it is, I think we often think this place is so toxic or this person I work with is just like, just, I cannot deal with them. I'm going to find a new job. And then we show up there and we're like, oh, guess what? There's one of them here too, right? They are mm. everywhere. And sometimes we're them, right? So yeah. I think it's it's really smart to be very, you know, sort of open-minded about what, or, or really not open-minded, but clear-eyed about what is it, what's going to improve in the next place. And even I think rather than sort of, jumping ship from a place that you find really challenging or from a relationship you're finding really difficult, I would say, write a list of what you want in a next workplace or a next job and try to find that. So rather than running away from, run towards something that you, you would prefer. And, and also be realistic that there are really difficult people everywhere. I talk to people about this all day long and no one ever tells me, nope, none here, like absolutely zero. It's, it is very rare that people tell me they're not working with someone they find difficult. But there are a couple other things you mentioned escalating, like how do I bring this to someone you know, who can do something about it. That's another th- option, of course, if you've tried, you know, made really good faith efforts and haven't been able to transform or shift the relationship. I, I just urge people to do that cautiously, partly because often escalating can backfire and we end up looking like the difficult person ourselves, like we're complaining. And you also have to be sure that you're escalating to someone who has the skills and motivation to do something about it. You know, a lot of the stories I hear is, are I, you know, I went to my boss and they made the situation worse, or I went to HR and they didn't know how to give this person feedback on their behavior. And you don't want to be in that situation. So just make sure you have someone, if you choose to escalate again, which is a viable option, just do it cautiously and and be prepared. Be prepared to have evidence for how the person's behavior is impacting the organization and its goals. Um, you know, have evidence of the, how the behavior is a pattern, not just a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and really make sure that you're not positioning your perspective as complaining, but as I want what's best for the organization and what's best for the team. Great advice. And this really taps into something that lately, since the pandemic, I feel like it's been talked about more and more and shouted from the rooftops. And that's talking about burnout and the importance of well-being. And in Chapter 14, you said the road is rarely easy when dealing with conflicts at work. There will be times when colleagues won't reciprocate your good faith efforts at reconciliation. Or you'll wonder why you always have to be the adult in the room. And that's why it's critical to take care of yourself along the way. Your health and well-being should always be a priority. No one gets a stress-free bubble. Uh, Could you share some of the best tactics that you found for preserving your mental health at work? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I love this question because I do think a lot of the advice I give in the book does require that you be the adult in the room and does Mm -hmm. require that you make an effort when someone maybe isn't. And that doesn't, people don't take that. (laughs) Like they don't always say like, oh, great. Yeah, I'll do all that. And understandably, like I get a lot of pushback about that and I get it. 
And I do stand by what you just read, which is that you shouldn't do anything that will compromise your mental health. And you you should always start with, am I taken care of? Am I getting what I need? And if that's not the case, figure that out before you start to make attempts to, to try to repair the relationship. So to answer your question more directly, there are a lot of tactics I offer for thinking about really preserving your mental health. And, and first and foremost is setting emotional boundaries, right? Because of our natural human tendency for negativity to focus on what things are negative, it's, it's our brain's way of protecting us. We scan for threats. Chances are you have one colleague, two, maybe three who are really challenging, and they're taking up so much space in your brain. And so think about, A, do you want them to to live there rent-free? I'm guessing you don't, right? So really set some limits around how much time you're going to spend thinking about them, ruminating about them, strategizing. And chances are you have really good relationships at work too. So can you lead into those more positive relationships, spend more time with those people and set boundaries around how you interact with the folks you find challenging? Like if you have a pessimistic colleague who loves to stop by your desk or find you on <laughs> Slack and just like give you their litany of complaints, you know, have a few excuses in your back pocket for how to get out of that conversation or tell yourself, I'm going to listen for five minutes and then I'm going to go back to work. So, Amy, you took a a while to write this book. What are some of the most valuable lessons that you learned personally um, from writing this that you've kind of applied? The list is long. (laughs) You know, part of of the reason I feel comfortable giving any of this advice is because I've made every mistake in the book. (laughs) And, and 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 I mean that literally in the book, but also like you know, theoretically, but, and I do talk a lot in the book about things I've messed up because I think it's important to normalize that this, none of this is, is super easy. You know, I, I, when I was writing the book, I was still learning this, this sort of deep importance of relationships. And there were a lot of the studies that I read that really, and how do I want to say this? I think I used to think that like having good relationships, actually going into writing the book, I thought having good relationships was an, was really nice. Like it was good mm-hmm. to have. And I got I got the sense, I certainly understood it mattered right to the work. Yeah. But I think the digging into the research on that, I really found and learned myself the deep importance of those positive relationships. There's this one study from a team at Rutgers that showed that people who consider one another at work best friends actually mm-hmm. have higher performance ratings. So anyone yeah. who sort of tells you this, these are soft things or like relationships are just sort of icing on the cake, like it's just not true. It affects how we perform. It affects whether the organization achieves a goal, its goals. These are very hard, concrete issues. Um, So that's one thing. I certainly deepened um, my understanding of that. The other thing was actually not a lesson in the writing of the book, but since it's come out. So one of the things I sort of presumed, and my editor and I talked about this a lot, was that people wouldn't pick up this book and read it and think, oh, I'm I'm the insecure boss or I'm the pet. Like they'd be so focused on the other person and that they're dealing with, which, you know, that was the intent of the book. So it made sense. But from day one, the book came out September 13th. And and by the end of the day on September 13th, I had no less than five messages from people who said, I've started your book and I realize I'm 
and you know insert archetype and i i just underestimated people's self-awareness around that uh, and, and their willingness to just sort of admit oh wow like i saw that list of behaviors and i actually realized that's me and which is both I, I, i'm actually i'm sad i underestimated people but it's just very relieving to me to know that they're People are out there. I think we often think the difficult person has no idea. They think they're perfect. They don't realize the impact they have. And I think my lesson has been most of them actually have an inkling. Most of the more self-aware ones, I should say, have an inkling and and actually do want to do something about it. But behavior change is hard and it's really hard. Even when you know what you're doing is hurting other people or causing you know roadblocks for your team, even if you know all of that and you're dedicated to change, it's still yeah. really hard. Yeah. Your sigh makes me think you, you relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Getting along oftentimes is challenging. It's yeah. There's conflict, but that's the, that's the part of it, right? I, I'm a firm believer that conflict is part of love, right? You To be direct um, and honest with someone, to be willing to raise a challenging issue, to be willing to admit your mistakes, like all of that is super uncomfortable, but it's part of being in relationship with other people. Well said. (laughs) Well, Amy, thanks again for coming on our podcast and sharing all this valuable research from your book, Getting Along. It is an indispensable guide to navigating your toughest relationships at work and building interpersonal resilience in the process. You can get a copy yourself at the link I included in our episode notes. Thanks again. Thank you, Van. This was great. I really appreciate this conversation. The 90th Percentile and Unconventional Leadership Podcast was written and recorded by Brianna Corin, Jack Zanger, and Joe Folkman, and produced by Zanger Folkman. If you're interested in learning more about Zanger Folkman's award-winning 360-degree assessments, leadership, and coaching offerings, or would like to attend our monthly leadership webinar series hosted by Jack and Joe, visit our website at zangerfolkman.com. If you like our podcast, tell your friends and coworkers about it, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a great review. We really like to read them. All resources and links to the research referenced in this episode can be found in our episode details or on our podcast page on zangerfolkman.com.